I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing schools, mostly for girls, in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. Greg is a former mountaineer who has devoted his life to promoting peace through education. Greg founded the Central Asian Institute in 1993, and the organization has developed clean water projects, vocational centers, and schools for girls in the world's most volatile and illiterate regions. The book Three Cups of Tea tells the story of Greg's journey from mountaineer to humanitarian. I recorded this interview with Greg in May 2010, before allegations developed against him in April 2011. The charges include fabricating stories in his books and misusing funds from his organization to promote his books. Welcome. Hi, Jessica. Nice to be with you today. Greg, in 1993, you were in Pakistan descending K2, which is the world's second tallest mountain. And after a failed attempt at reaching the summit, you took a wrong turn off the trail and ended up in a remote village of Corfe. And that wrong turn changed your life. What did you see in Corfe that resonated with you so much? Well, what struck me first was the hospitality of the people, the very impoverished people. They also live at the end of the road or, say, the frontiers of civilization. And it was mostly that they took me in. Um, I was a stranger there. They, they fed me. They gave me everything they had. And one day I walked behind the village. I saw 84 children sitting in the dirt during their school lessons. Uh, it was about five girls and 79 boys, and most of the children were riding with a stick in the sand. So when a, a young girl named Chocho came up to me and said, could you help us build a school, I made a very rash promise that day, and I said, I promise I'll build a school for you. Were they used to seeing foreigners? No, I'd actually taken a wrong turn, and I went south instead of north, and I, I went into this village, so I was one of the first foreigners who had stumbled into the village. And I was, I also was very emaciated. My pants were ripped. I hadn't taken a bath in 84 days. So I must have been quite a sight, you know, for these, to see this tall Angres, I mean, a white man coming in with ripped pants into a village. I was also struck by the fact that those kids in the dirt during their lessons, there was no teacher there. Uh, I asked them, where's your teacher? And they pointed to the next village, Munjung, where he spent half the week because they couldn't afford his daily $1 salary. Starting a school was in your DNA to some extent. Your mother had started a school in Tanzania, and your father had started a hospital. Can you tell me a little bit about your past in Tanzania? Well, I grew up in Tanzania. I I'm, was born in Minnesota, you know, Garrison Keeler stock, Minnesota Norwegian Lutheran. And But when I was three months old, my parents went to Tanzania. Uh, my father ended up starting a hospital called the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center, and my mother started school. So... In, in my childhood, I did have a background of um, service and watching my parents toil to get the school and hospital set up. And I, th I think the other thing I learned from my father was he always insisted on having local people in charge of the hospital. And that often didn't go very well with the Americans and Europeans because they said you need a qualified Mzungu or a white man to run the hospital. But my father insisted that Africans be in charge. So I guess the lesson that people can be empowered. And that's kind of in our philosophy now when we do projects. We first work with the people and we empower them, but we let them run the show. When you reached Corfe and this, this little girl comes up to you and asks to build a school, what was your state of mind professionally? I mean, you had 
you you had you had experienced this failed attempt at K two. What was waiting for you at home, and well, where was home? Well, I was living in the Bay Area in uh, California. I was totally broke. I did have I was a trauma nurse. I did have work that I could do. I was also a graduate student. I was studying uh, neurophysiology, the study of epilepsy, and I I wanted to get into epilepsy research because of my sister Krista, who had died from epilepsy. And but I I was also I I was without a goal at that point. I thought I was going to climb K two to honor my sister who had died from epilepsy. And then when I didn't get to the top, my two partners did summit, but I didn't quite make it to the top. And that's that's the title of Three Cups of Tea is the word failure. Um, I I use that because I I think many of our successes in life are based in failure or making mistakes. I came off rather you know, without a sense of direction and purpose. And, and little did I know that was, there was a bigger purpose in my going there was to help the people. You were homeless at the time. You were living out of your car in San Francisco. When you would return from a climb, you would sleep in a self-storage stall. Is that right? Once I made a promise to build a school, I came back to the Bay Area. I I worked a lot. I also wrote 580 letters to raise money, but I also lived in my car, but it was to save money. It was a way to save every penny I could to get this school started. I used to also crash on people's floors, and I'm also very comfortable living in tents. This is nothing unusual for me. You decided to start a school for girls. How come for girls versus for girls and boys? Well, in Africa, as a child, I learned a proverb, and I've never forgotten the proverb. It says, if we educate a boy, we educate an individual. But if we can educate a girl, we educate a community. And the more that I do this, I'm convinced that, well, education has to be our top national and international priority, but especially educating girls. Um, educating girls reduces infant mortality, reduces the population explosion, uh, girls who can learn how to read and write. Um, they often tend to teach their mothers how to read and write, so it becomes kind of a community thing. Um, also, when a girl, women who are educated are less likely to encourage their son to get into violence or into terrorism, and I've seen that happen over the last decade. Um, the Taliban, their primary recruiting grounds are illiterate, impoverished society. So, I mean, educating girls has profound benefits in many different areas of life. Was this accepted immediately in, in Corfe? Haji Ali was the, the leader of the village. Um, did, was he amenable to this uh, immediately? Haji Ali was amenable, and the, it was ironic because he was very conservative and he lived beyond the scope of any media or any um, newspaper. But in many areas, the mullahs, the illiterate mullahs are very reluctant to have girls go to school. They feel that women should work like shadow and they, they're just they're they're meaningless other than for having babies and working. So we've had to overcome many obstacles in order to get girls to go to school. And the Quran advocates educating both men and women. Yeah, in in the Holy Quran, the first word of the revelation to Muhammad the Prophet is the Arabic word Ikra, which means read. And there's nothing in the Quran that says girls can't go to school. In fact, um, many uh, citations from the Quran or the Hadith, which is a part of Islam, um, specify that people should go out and seek the truth, or meaning, meaning get an education.
We're talking about uh, Haji Ali, uh, who was the the mullah of of Corfe. He was willing to, to to let you establish a school for women. He was illiterate. Can you speak a little bit about that and how you found out he was illiterate? Well, I, I didn't know he was illiterate for about 10 years. Every evening he would sit on a little rickety bed called a charfoy, and he had a thick goggle glasses and a little kerosene lantern, and then he would read either the Quran or Persian poetry. But I noticed after I got to know him a while, he seemed despondent when he read or sad, and he would also have a tear in his eye sometimes. So one day I asked Haji Ali, why are you sad when you read? And he looked at me, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Greg, I don't know how to read. I'm illiterate, and I memorize these books. And he showed me how, like in the books, he had flipped the pages every fourth page or put in twigs or a piece of paper or marked in the book. He said, it's my life's greatest sadness that I never learned how to read and write, and my life's greatest hope that my children and my grandchildren can learn to read and write. And that's kind of a profound message to the whole universe, that an illiterate man knew education is is the key for for all people. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing approximately 150 schools, mostly for girls, in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. So you say, okay, I don't have much going on back in the United States. I'm going to found a school for girls in Corfe in Pakistan, and you went back to California and you tried raising money. You mentioned that you wrote over 500 letters. Well, I hand-typed. I, was, I didn't know I used a computer at the time. So I hand-typed 580 letters, and I, I went to the local library, and I looked up the name of celebrities and movie stars, so I, I hand-typed these 500 letters. And I only got one check back from Tom Brokaw, the newscaster, for 100 bucks, and, and then I ended up selling my car, which I had inherited from my grandpa. I sold my climbing gear, and I sold my books, Black Oak Bookstore in Berkeley. So it was very painful <laughs> to sell all your books, a really mar- big markdown. Mm-hmm. And by springtime, I'd raised about $3,000. And my mother, who was an elementary school principal in Wisconsin, invited me to come and talk to the kids there. And um, this is in the spring of 94, and a fourth grade named Jeffrey came up to me afterwards, and he said, I have a piggy bank at home, and I'm going to help you. And, you know, I was, I thought, well, what can this fourth grader do? But six weeks later, they had raised 62,340 pennies. So that's really what got us started, is is a fourth grader and his pennies. Didn't you also uh, finally borrow a a computer from a Pakistani living in Berkeley? Yeah, it was a Pakistani gentleman named Kish, who's from Multan, Pakistan, he runs a laser image on Shaddock Avenue. It's a copy center. And I, one day I was, I went to rent typewriter there, like a dollar an hour. And he looked at one day. He said, "What are you doing?" I said, well, "I'm trying to raise money for a school in Pakistan." And so he taught me how to use a computer. It was quite funny. Uh, here's a literate Pakistan uh, shopkeeper who knows how to use a computer, teaching an American who's illiterate on a computer to raise, write letters to raise money for illiterate children in Pakistan. <laughs> you mentioned that despite your your ambitious letter-writing campaign, you only got a check from Tom Brokaw, and although you did raise money from these children from your mom's school, where did the $12,000 come from uh, that you said would cost to build the school? 
Well, eventually, a year later, I was getting ready to go back to Pakistan. I was still quite short of funds, and a Swiss physicist named Jean Herny, who invented the planar process in 1957, which was the prototype of the rigid microchip, he called me up and he heard about what I was doing, and he wrote a check that funded the final amount for the school, and when he sent me the check, he just wrote these three words, don't screw up, John. <laughs> so hopefully I've um, fulfilled his legacy that I didn't screw up with the first school. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Three Cups of Tea. This interview was recorded in May 2010, a year before the allegations against him in April 2011 that he fabricated stories in his books and misappropriated the funds from his institute to promote his books. We'll hear more from Greg Mortensen coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing schools, mostly for girls, in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. Greg is a former mountaineer who has devoted his life to promoting peace through education. Greg founded the Central Asian Institute in 1993, and the organization has developed clean water projects, vocational centers, and schools for girls in the world's most volatile and illiterate regions. The book Three Cups of Tea tells the story of Greg's journey from mountaineer to humanitarian. I recorded this interview with Greg in May 2010, before allegations developed against him in April 2011. The charges include fabricating stories in his books and misusing funds from his organization to promote his books. So you have this $12,000 now in your pockets, and you go back to Pakistan. Talk to me about how you spent that money. Well, I was very careful. I didn't want to spend a spare dime. So I, when I went to the bazaar, I befriended some people, and they bargained ruthlessly, which now I've learned is part of the culture in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I'd calculated basically down to the last dollar how I'd get the money and spend it and but there's also a lot of obstacles, um, like getting the supplies up to the village. And so um, it was it was kind of painful to watch this money go away without having done anything yet. And then when I finally got to Corfe, Hajali, he didn't think I was coming back. He said, we thought, you know, your promise was you would never show up, and you did show up. But if we really want to build a school, we're going to have to build a bridge first. What was your response to that? Well, first I was shocked. <laughs> Because I, I was like a horse with blinders on. All I could think about, i got to get the school built. And he, with all earnesty, said, we have to build a bridge first. Look at this. How are we going to get these supplies over the river? And so then I, and I also spent six months there over the winter learning the language. I learned more about the culture and the people. And But I realized um, when leaving that I had to raise $10,000 more dollars we'd have to build about a 300-foot bridge to get the supplies across the Bralda River in order to get the school built. What, by the way, when you ultimately did build the bridge, what impact did that have on maternal ties in the region? Well, I only built the bridge to get the supplies to the school, but I, I didn't realize that there were bigger implications. One, the people could access health care much quicker. Um, and, and the thing that I hadn't thought about at all was the women who lived on the south side of the valley on the river, when they got married, their maternal ties were severed. 
And so when the bridge got built on Fridays, notice they would put on their colorful garb and their best uh, clothing and then walk across the bridge and go visit their family or extended families. And for some of the women, it was the first time in decades that they had gone to see their families, even though they lived just, you know, right down the river, but they were able to walk across the bridge. It really helped to empower the women in, in the whole Braldo Valley. We talk about, you know, how maternal ties were broken because there was no bridge. But just in detail, like when, when a woman is about to get married, I mean, she, she's crying and holding on to her mother for dear life before a ceremony. Did you ever witness that? Uh, yes, I've been to some weddings, um, and there's different versions of it. But basically when the bride, it comes time to take her away from her family to go with the groom's family, you'll see the bride and her mother cling to each other. And then the family of the groom starts to pile up a dowry, you know, these maybe promises of gold or goats or land or sheep or something. And then when the pile gets big enough and the the father of the, the, the bride is satisfied, he'll nod his head. And at that point, the groom's women, the women from the groom's family come and start to pull the bride away from her mother. And then there's a ceremonial weeping and wailing. And But it symbolizes that when that woman leaves her family, often her maternal ties are completely severed and she will not have any, you know, access to support from her family. So it is, you know, it's very traumatic and, and they kind of uh, stage this in a, during the wedding ceremonies. I'm Jessica Harris and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, director of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing approximately 150 schools in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. So Haji Ali says we need this bridge, and you ultimately do build it as a means to build the school. Um, but can you talk to me a little bit about your personal health during this time? Because here you're kind of on a mental roller coaster going back and forth between Pakistan and California. And, you know, you thought you were building a school, and now you're building a bridge. Can you lend some more color to that? Well, I never realized what I would get into by building this school, and it was very frustrating because first I had to raise the money, then I went back there, then I had to build a bridge, I come back here, and when I got back there, realized the bridge was actually a phenomenal engineering feat. But then I witnessed um, the men carry five 800-pound steel cables 18 miles up the mountain trails. They, they put them on a big wooden spool and carry them, eight men, on their back, and I realized that there was no nothing that was going to stop them from getting a school built, but for me, it was it was definitely an emotional roller coaster. When you came back home to get the money for for the bridge, what was John Herney's reaction when you said, "Well, I need ten thousand dollars on top of the twelve thousand dollars you already gave me"? Well, he was very angry, very upset. He had leukemia, so he's starting to get his health was deteriorating, and so he said, "You know, you promised you're going to get the school built, and now." You know, this is going to be another year, and I'm not doing very well. You you have to build a school before I die. So there was also urgency on his part to get a school built. Also, when you came back home, you met your wife. This is before the bridge was built. Can you tell me about how you met your wife? Well, I, in 1995, September, I was 38 years old. I was a bachelor. I was at a fundraising dinner in San Francisco, and it was getting pretty late. So I walked to the back. And there in the back was this beautiful woman in a dress, and she had on black combat boots. And I started talking to her. Her name was Tara Bishop, and her father was a mountaineer and the uh, chairman of the Research and Exploration Committee with National Geographic Society. I started talking to her, and six days later we got married. And, and we never regretted that we, we just both feel it was meant to be. And But that's how I ended up finding my you know my life partner. 
I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing approximately 150 schools, mostly for girls, in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. People called you Dr. Greg in Pakistan. Why did they call you Dr. Greg? Well, sometimes I am not a doctor. I, I was a trauma nurse, but sometimes... I would help women who were dying from septic shock after birth, or I would help people. Um, there's no health care there, and, and so the nickname kind of stuck. I keep trying to say I'm not a doctor, but they keep calling me Dr. Gidek, So You talk about helping, helping women uh, in, in shock after birth, and I bring this up because it shows the level of trust that the people in Corfe had towards you. Could you tell that story? When I was starting out building the first school, one of the my friends, Ibrahim, he asked me to come to his house. He brought me into the basement, and his wife, Rokia, was in septic shock. It was, I mean, a very putrid smell, and she had delivered her first baby, who was barely hanging on, and she was her pulse was very thready. She was she was pretty much unconscious, and I, I figured out that her placenta hadn't passed. And so he asked me what to do, and I said, "Well, we have to. We're going to have to go and get the placenta out of there." And and then he said, well, you know, I, I was reluctant to do it because it's a very conservative Islamic society. And Ibrahim had, he just said, you know, please save my wife for me and I don't do what you have to do. And um, I, I'm a trauma nurse, so we went in and we pulled out her uterus and, and we also massaged her fundus, which is the uterus. And Rokia, she lived um, and her baby survived. What's unfortunate, though, is what I didn't write about in Three Cups of Tea is when Rokia had her second baby, the same thing happened. And nobody was there, and she she died. And so it kind of taught me that you can help people and give them health care, but the key is is you have to empower them through education. Rokia was the... It's very tragic every time I go see Ibrahim because I know his wife perished because I didn't really explain the necessity of nursing and um, um, what and- would need to be done afterwards. Hmm. I want to talk a little more about the opposition that you faced in building the school. While you were fortunate that Haj Ali was very supportive of you, there were conservative mullahs from the other tribes or villages who were not. And at one point, um, when you were trying to establish more schools in the Waziristan region, you were captured by the Taliban. Can you describe that experience? In uh, July 1996, I left Corfe for a while during the final phase of the school building because Haj Ali didn't want me sitting there <laughs> monitoring everything. And so I decided to find a place to build the next school, and I went to Azuristan, and I went in, say, unannounced uh, without asking permission. The reason I was captured by them was, first, I went in without their permission, but the most important thing is there there was an ongoing dispute between two tribal factions or clans. So when I stumbled into this um, dispute, I was held by one of the clans as a bartering chip in order to solve their long-term dispute, and that's what uh, that's the real reason I was detained um, in Wazuristan. When you were detained, like, what was going through your mind? Did you ever have these existential questions of, why don't I just go back to Montana and be with my family and just leave a simple life? Like, what was what was going on? Well, I was held for eight days. I was never tortured, but I wasn't, I wasn't treated that well either. And I first got very depressed because my wife was seven months pregnant, and all I could think about is surviving, um, how I could escape or maybe even outsmart or just fight my way out of there. And then I realized after three days, there's no way I can get out of here. But I, So I thought the best way to get 
to get out of my detention was to befriend my captors. So I first asked them to bring me a Quran and teach me about their faith. And then on the sixth day, I told them my wife is seven months pregnant and I want to go home for the birth of my firstborn son. And in their culture, life's greatest event is the first, uh, son who's the firstborn. Now, I didn't uh, ended up having a daughter, but <laughs> that happened later. But um, um, that was that really started to change things around. And I said, I want to go home for the birth of my son. Were there other incidences of mullahs who were not supportive of what you were doing? Well, I've received two fatwas against me, and a fatwa is like an edict. Both were banishing me from the country. The first one was from a Shia imam, and that was rescinded uh, with a letter to the imam saying that in the Quran, nothing says girls can't go to school, and this man is acting in the highest principles of Islam. And the second fatwa was in 2002. It was more severe. It was from a Sunni imam, and it basically not only banished me from the country, but said anybody could destroy our schools and at- attack them. And that was taken by the community called a Hemisil um, to the Shariat Court of Law, which is in Pakistan. There's the government court and the Shariat Court, the Islamic Court. And eventually in the High Shariat Court, that was also rescinded with a severe admonishment to the imam saying that that what I was doing was not um, was consistent with Islam to help children go to school. We talk about opposition by conservative mullahs. Um, what about by the government? I mean, here you were building schools faster, cheaper, better than the Pakistani government was building them. Did they? Did the government ever wish you not there, or did they see you as kind of a, a benefit to them because they weren't doing the job? Well, I think they, they somewhat saw me as a benefit to them. At the same time, what they didn't like was that I was empowering people and working at the district level to get unify people and then who would who would on a collective basis go to the provincial government or the national government and um, they felt that was undermining the credibility of the national government which originally was basically non-existent where we worked and um, there's also so much corruption and they they said well you can take care of this by giving us some money you know bribe or bakshish but we've refused to ever give any government official any money we're talking about all these schools that you've helped to establish, um, but let's let's take the Corfe School for example. What is the curriculum like, and and how has the curriculum changed since the first school was built? I say our curriculum is far different than originally we had in Corfe. We have the standard reading, writing, arithmetic, and science that the governments require. We also teach. Uh, well, at first they speak their native tongue, but we teach four additional languages. And we not only teach the kids how to read Arabic, though we teach them how to read, write, and understand Arabic. And that's a big difference between an extremist madrasa is when kids learn how to read and write and understand Arabic, they'll find out that in the Quran, you know, nothing says girls can't go to school. Then we have um, hygiene, sanitation, nutrition. And then the, the other thing we do in our schools, which is rather unique, is we have the elders come in two or three times a week and do the storytelling tradition. Because I think... The one negative thing about literacy is it often eradicates the very rich traditions in indigenous societies. And I actually started that because of what I saw in U.S. schools. I, I, ask, I always ask kids in U.S. schools, how many of you have spent more than about 10 hours talking to your grandparents about the Depression or World War II or the Civil Rights Movement? And very consistently, the average in the U.S. is 5 to 10%. Now, if you ask the same question in Pakistan or Afghanistan in a rural school, they will ninety percent of the kids 
or 100% put their hands up. So mm. we, we don't want that um, tradition to go away where they learn about their uh, folklore and their culture and their heritage. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about uh, September 11th. Um, you were in Pakistan during that time. Can you talk to me about where you were when you found out about the World Trade Center? I was in uh, 9-11, 9-12. I was in a very remote valley called Charpasan. It's on the Afghan-Pakistan border in the tribal areas. Uh, I didn't find out till about maybe 30 hours later. Um, there's no phone there. There's no TV. There's no nothing there. And the first thing I had heard was that a village called New York has been bombed and 50,000 people were killed. And and then more kind of rumors. And so I asked to uh, for a satellite phone, which was about a day away, and some people brought that by Jeep and horseback. And then I called my wife, and I found out what had happened. And my initial reaction and the people there were was we were afraid that the U.S. would start bombing indiscriminately. And then later, what happened was the Americans were ordered or asked to leave the country, but I decided to stay there because I had so much work to do, and I was befriended by the people. And um, I remember a very elderly widow named Hawa who brought me five eggs at the opening of a school on September 14th, and she said, could you give this to the widows in New York who are suffering? And she said, I'm sorry, this is all I have to give, but please share this with the widows in New York. And that's kind of what I saw um, the weeks after 9-11. You were very vocal about um, not wanting Americans to view all Muslims as the same, and this was kind of perceived controversially, and you received a lot of hate mail when you returned home in Montana. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just said this is a very complex issue and um, that the real enemy is ignorance and that most people there were not responsible at all for what had happened in New York. and. And then I started getting hate mail and death threats from Americans. And it was the only time I thought about quitting my work. And it was my wife, Tara, who said, you know, you need to go out in public and talk about what you're doing. And that's what I did. And over the years, what I found is that Americans were very generous people and were very compassionate people. And and I I also think, though, we're way too much living in fear and we're, we're spending billions and billions of dollars to build walls around our country when we should be reaching out and building bridges of peace, literally and mm-hmm. <laughs> figuratively. You faced a lot of challenges, obviously, in launching the first school and the, the hundreds of schools after. What for you has been the, the biggest obstacle? The hardest part for me in this whole endeavor is, you know, I was it's not in my genes to go out in public and be in front of people, and I'm a really shy guy. Um, I've now been Capitol Hill many times. I help brief our top military commanders. I, I, I'm a big advocate for girls' education. I, generally, when I speak now, we have between two and ten thousand people show up, and um, I have to sign books for three to six hours afterwards. And it even psychologically, I get shut down sometimes by having to do this so much. And you know, it's mostly because of my wife's support. And but it does. We have people in Pakistan, Afghanistan, who threaten us. And here in the U.S., we also have people who threaten us. And, but but on the other hand, I get to have the great joy of watching a child, you know, writing their name with a stick in the sand for the first time or seeing a young woman go back to her village and prevent hundreds of women from dying in childbirth. So to me, it's all worth it. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks, Jessica. My guest has been Greg Mortensen, founder of the Central Asian Institute, an organization responsible for establishing approximately 150 schools, mostly for girls in northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. 
This interview was recorded in May 2010, a year before the allegations against him in April 2011 that he fabricated stories in his books and misappropriated the funds from his institute to promote his books. Coming up, we'll meet Sam Farber, founder of OXO, a leading kitchenware company. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.